Greg Kokel is the president of Stand to Reason, an organization dedicated to equipping Christian ambassadors with knowledge, wisdom, and character by teaching the value of using our minds to love God and share the gospel. He's written or contributed to 17 books, including The Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between, and Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. Greg, thanks so much for coming on Takeaways again. Kirk, it's always a lot of fun to be with you, really. Well, I have so many questions, and you've shared some of those questions and then answers uh, to those questions that have really helped me in my faith. Uh huh. Well, we've been friends for a number of years, and it's been good to get back and forth and knock things around, and you're doing great work as well, and I'm glad to be a, a contributor of some sense to your own project. That's great. Well... Thank you, and uh, thank you for all of the years of ministry that you have served us with. Uh, One of the things that I love about your radio show and your books is that you've dedicated yourself for decades to teaching people how to properly understand the message of Christianity so they don't get that wrong and then be able to articulate that message so that other people don't get it wrong. Yeah. Greg, what are some of the most common misconceptions about Christianity? Well, I guess one of them is that they think of Christianity starting 2,000 years ago instead of seeing the larger picture. Mm. Christianity obviously is about Christ, but Jesus didn't just drop out of the sky somewhere into a theological vacuum. Uh, You go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we see the hints of a savior or a rescuer that's going to come in the future, and then as time goes on and God works through the nation of Israel, we see the setting being uh, laid out for the time when the rescuer, the Messiah, the savior of the world would, in a certain sense, land. And when you look at the birth narratives, you see all of these statements by everybody from Zacharias uh, to uh, John the Baptist's father to uh, the the angels and what they say to Mary and what they say at the birth of Jesus and to that scene in the uh, temple when Jesus comes. All of these statements that are made about this child are tied to this long history. Unless you see the long history, Mm -hmm. unless you see the big story of reality the way I Yeah, I love that. I love that title. How how the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. Unless you see that continuity, um, you'll understand the basics about Jesus, but you won't see the elegance of the entire story. Mm. And I think, Kirk, the elegance of the story, how it all fits together in a powerful way, is one of the strongest evidences that Christianity is true. It it makes sense as a story, and by the way, this is a true story, it's not just a story, it's the true story of reality. But it also helps to see how the problem of evil makes sense in our story, it's part of our story. It starts in chapter three, doesn't get solved until 66 books later. It helps make sense of why Jesus is the only way, simply he's the only one who solved the problem. What problem? At the beginning of the story. So all of these pieces fit together in a powerful way and I think that is one of the most elegant defenses of Christianity how the story fits together. And that's what a lot of Christians don't understand. Before you were a Christian, Greg, what, were, what was your perception of the Bible? Was this just a book full of rules like it was for me? I saw it as this book written in an old English translation that made no sense to me. I couldn't yeah. understand why anyone read it. I, I, had, I had very little awareness of the Bible. I was raised in a quasi-Christian environment. Then when I became a teenager in the mid-60s, I just uh, let it all go and I moved past all of that. And uh, my basic perspective was I thought I was too smart to be a Christian. 
I mean, it's crazy. I thought Christians were all dumb or ugly. That was my sense of things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't want anything to do with it. Some of and us so fit the, the bill. The bo- <laughs> the, the bo- but the, the book that, that they drew their information from, to me, this was a liability. Why are you leaning on information from a book that's 2,000 years old or older and letting someone else tell you how to think instead of thinking for yourself. So my attitude was completely dismissive. Now as I look back, I think, wow, that really makes sense. That really makes sense. That really makes sense. Much more than any other worldview can do. Hmm. My view, Christians have reality on their side because we can point to all these things about the real world that people are already aware of that fit perfectly into our story. Greg, what are some of the the wow characteristics about the Bible? I mean, what are some of the things about the Bible, about the way that it's written, about the content of it, mm-hmm. that you that just stand out to you as being unique from other books yeah. and particularly um, bring to life the reality of the world? Well, the, the one I just referred to, and I call this, uh, and others have used this language of it, but uh, it, the unity of Scripture, okay? And what I'm referring to there, and I use my fingers on my hand as a kind of memory device, and so the ring finger talks about unity. You know, you think of marriage and the unity of marriage. Um, that the Scripture is unified in the message it communicates. Now, think about this. We have six, 66 books that are written over thousands of years by people of all walks of life in in, uh, very different perspectives on things who communicate a piece of the story. And in a sense, it's kind of like a puzzle fitting together and they give a piece to the puzzle and they don't know the whole puzzle picture, so to speak. They don't know the big picture. They just know this little piece. But when you look through the text and you study it and you see all these different things coming together, all these puzzle pieces that different people have contributed Mm. without being aware of the other person's part over the thousands of years, they fit together in this incredible mosaic that I referred to earlier that comes together in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So this is a unity that defies a naturalistic explanation. And as I look at this this book, though it has individual characteristics by the different authors, it, it, it tells one story. And, uh, and that, has a, that to me is one of the most amazing things about the Bible. As given the divine, the, rather the diverse authorship mm-hmm. of all these people over all this time, that they can each put together a piece that comes out in the end to show, to show this incredible portrait of the rescuer who turns out to be God himself coming to the planet to rescue us. That to me is really, really powerful. And will you just explain to us the fundamental difference of uh, the way you get to peace with God, the way you get your sins forgiven. Uh, in the Bible, it's totally different than every other religious That's book. That's right, yeah. It's, and I talk about this a lot in the story of reality because what, what happens is we have God who creates human beings to be in friendship with, with him and to share in his happiness. But man gets himself in a heap of trouble. And so then God puts together a rescue plan. You might remember Philippians chapter 2, though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself and took on the form of a man, and then not just a human being, but a servant, and then dying the death of a common criminal. So we have this magnificent rescue story Mm. that is absolutely unique. Every other religious point of view has man rescuing himself. Maybe God can help, 
He gives him the guidance, whatever, but ultimately it's up to man. In this case, in our story, with Christ, he is the rescuer because we cannot rescue ourselves. And that's good because when he rescues, he does a complete job. What does it mean to say that the Bible yeah. is God-breathed? Yeah, and you're taking that line from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 that it's not just like God had somebody write what he wanted, but that God was so personally involved that it was almost like his breathing th out and breathing through people to write down, okay? And this is where I go back to the hand illustration because I think that there are, there are six points that I could make or reasons I could give that I'll give them briefly here. The question here is what is what kind of book is the Bible? That's the qu question. Is it a book by men about God? That's a possibility. Or is it a book by God to men? Okay, who is the main author? Now, in the second case, it's by God through men to men. But if God is the main author having a human being involved isn't going to be a problem because God's bigger than their liabilities. So that's the question. Is it a natural book or is it a supernatural book? Okay. And so I look at six different reasons that intimate to me, that indicate that the book is a supernatural book, not a natural book. First of all, pinky, fulfilled prophecy. There's lots of prophecy in the Bible that's fulfilled. You can talk about hundreds in the life of Christ. Some of them seem a little obscure. You stick with the main ones, you know, Psalm 22. You know, uh, there it looks like you have a man <laughs> repeating from the position of being on a cross what a crucifixion is like. It's David writing, of course, and that's the psalm that starts, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But then you have all these other things that are going on that are characteristic of an execution that doesn't even come into existence until 700 years later and wasn't practiced by the Jews anyway, only by the Romans. Uh, you have a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that you, you could work it out almost to the day when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay, I'm just grabbing two. Yeah, prophecy. Lots and lots of prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. That's not natural. That's supernatural, okay? I talked about the unity of Scripture, yep. okay? Defies a naturalistic explanation, okay? That's the second. The third one I also intimated. That is the big finger reminds me that it answers the big questions in a way that's consistent with our perception of reality. It resonates mm. with our deepest intuitions. We know something's wrong about the world. We know there's something wrong about us. So a philosophy that says, no, there is no right or wrong in the world, that would be secularism. It's just whatever we want, you do you, that can't be right. That doesn't match up to reality. So you have this supernatural insight. I'm mm. just going to call it. That's the third one. Then you have index to history, index finger. And that is that the, the, this, in the Bible, God intervenes in history. So he leaves his mark. The big issue, nation of Israel, Old Testament, the Exodus, etc., and the occupation of the land and all that. Well, there are ways of testing that just from a historical perspective. That's right, archaeology. Archaeology and, and all of that. And then you have, especially in the life of Christ, you have the ancient historical records we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but not just them. There's a bunch of others, too, right. that make reference to it. Now, this particular point doesn't prove that the Bible's divine, but it shows that insofar as it's reporting on what happened, we have good reason to believe that it's accurate. And what it records is a record of supernatural events, especially in the life of Jesus. Mm. And that goes to the issue of the resurrection, which is another topic. But So we've got the index to history. Then we have thumbs up, you know, gladiator lives, changes lives. Lives are transformed as a result 
of following Jesus. Yours is an excellent example and publicly mm. known, okay? But n billions, literally, of other lives radically, supernaturally transformed. You put them all together, those five, into a fist. And this reminds me that the Bible is a survivor through time and through persecution. Through many, many attempts to destroy it, it still survives. Now, these are six reasons, all right? Prophecy, unity, big questions, index to history of supernatural events, changes lives, survives through history, that are all good reasons to indicate there's something more going on than human beings just mm. writing a book. Greg, let's talk a little bit about studying the Bible yeah. so that we can understand what it means by what it says. One of the things that you're always reminding your students is uh, never read a Bible verse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What, what do you mean by that? This is the number one rule, and I'm telling you, if more people would follow that rule, which I'll explain in a moment, uh, I'd be kind of out of a job. People would be calling me on the air on my own show now, 33 years, asking me questions about the Bible because I go back to the context and I say, here's your verse, okay, but what's going on above that verse? What's going on below that verse? Oh, yes, oh, wow, you're so smart. I'm not smart, I just read the passage. Okay, so the rule here is, and this is the most important thing, that I could ever teach any other brother or sister in Christ to help them be a better Christian, to follow Christ better. Go to the Word, we have to, we have, to have our food, right? We have to have, be reminded of what reality is like and that's what the scripture tells us, what the world is really like. And, uh, and then we follow this rule, never read a Bible verse. That is, if you wanna know what a verse means, you can't just read the verse, you've got to read the paragraph at least, and sometimes even a book, okay, uh, or a chapter, or you know, you understand how the whole thing is working right. together. In fact, even in, if somebody tuned into this show and just caught one line from you or from me, they'd be lost. And they might misunderstand what we're saying because they're missing the rest of the conversation. We come out of church, there are people gathering around with each other, they're chit-chatting, we hear something that piques our curiosity, and we ask a question of the group because we heard this thing that caught our attention. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what are you talking about? And that's the question you should always ask every single time you go to the Bible. Uh, I have a piece that, uh, that, that it, it's on our website, str.org, Christiana Reason. It's called uh, Misquoting God. And it's all these passages where people take verses out of context and completely misunderstand them. Yep. You know, here's one out of uh, John 12 or whatever, and, and Jesus, and it's quoted a lot by worship leaders, okay? You know, innocently. And they say, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself, so let's lift up Jesus here and let's praise <laughs> the Lord. Oh, of course, this is what they're thinking, is that lifting up Christ means to praise him, and that has a powerful effect on people. Well, it does have a powerful effect on people, but it's not what Jesus was talking about. All they had to do was keep reading, and they would realize that Jesus meant something different. And he says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. This Jesus said to indicate the manner of his death. He was being lifted up on a pole. That's right. On a cross. Uh, yeah, yes, crucified. Okay, so, all right, let's brothers and sisters, we'll crucify Jesus, hey, hallelujah. No, they misunderstood it because they didn't keep reading. Jesus gave the interpretation there. Now, this is an innocent mistake, all right? But let's take another one. Let's take the um, parable of the, uh, the Good Samaritan, okay? Now, this is taken as a morality 
parable. This right. is the way we're supposed to live. And th there's, there is an application there, no question. But the problem is, is the Good Samaritan is separated in our Bibles by a heading. Okay, and so people start reading there. Good Samaritan, oh, here's the thing. They miss what comes before it. What came before it? Two great commandments. Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'll just say, Kirk, I have never in my entire life ever fulfilled that first commandment, okay? So with that first commandment, I'm a goner already. Second commandment, maybe once or twice mm. in my life, I've considered somebody in a meaningful way more than myself. But if those are the great commandments, I'm sunk, which is the point that Jesus gave the commandments, the summary of the law. Who can keep that, right? Yeah. That's the bad news. But there was a lawyer who said, well, um, that second commandment, he must have figured he had the first one squared away. He said, who is my neighbor? And here's what the text says. John writes in, seeking to justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? Seeking to just, I got the first one squared away and I probably got the second kind of dependent on who my neighbor is, I'm probably self-justified. And so Jesus answers and says, your neighbor is your worst enemy. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. The point of the Good mm -hmm. Samaritan is not to tell us how we're supposed to treat our neighbors. I mean, it does that. But it's to show us how we don't treat our neighbors and how guilty we are before God and therefore we need salvation. That's right. That's the point of the parable. Mm. And if you miss that point, you miss Jesus' point. Yeah, and you could even go down the wrong road of this works righteousness thing. Well, if I'm just like the Good Samaritan, I'll get into heaven. That's right. The point was, no, that actually you can't justify yourself That's right. because you've got the whole idea of what that means uh, to love your neighbor yeah, wrong. all mixed up. And so, so there, that's just one example. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of examples that I could give you. And frankly, some would really step on people's toes because what I do is disabuse them of some of their favorite verses that they thought meant this and turned out to mean something entirely different. What about cross-referencing scripture? What about cross-reference Bibles that say, oh, okay, if you've read this and there's a little uh, highlight footnote or something there, and it's going to take you over to another, is that a helpful tool? Yeah, it can be really helpful. A lot of times what you have in the New Testament is a citation That's what from the Old Testament, okay? And so then you can go and look at the Old Testament context, and it will give more understanding to why the author in the New Testament is, is citing this particular passage. Now, don't be surprised if you find like this is different wording. And the reason it's different wording is our Old Testaments are translated from the Hebrew, okay? But the apostles used the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. And so they were citing from the Septuagint, which is a translation. And so you're going to have a little different variation between the different passages. And that sends people for a loop a little bit. But it's not a problem. But cross-referencing is really good. It's, there's not a problem there as long as you're seeing the relationship. Now, sometimes it's just here, New Testament's talking about love, and here's something the Old Testament about love. Well, it might be talking about love in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And so this is why it's really important to never read a Bible verse, even right. when you're using a cross-reference. The other thing to watch out for, and I mentioned headings, for example. Headings in your Bible are added by people. I'll tell you something else that's added by people is the numbers and the chapters. The numbers and chapters came in you know, like four or 500 years ago. The difficulty is, is that the chapter breaks will sometimes break up the continuity. 
You know, one yep. famous place in the Gospels where you will not, Jesus said, you will not see death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Oh, where is Jesus? He hasn't returned. He must have got it wrong. The next verse, if you go past the chapter break, is when Jesus takes the apostles, Matthew, uh, Peter, James, and John up the hill and he's transfigured in their presence, okay? That's what he's referring to, okay? And that's why they're connected that way, but the chapter breaks it off and so you don't see the connection and it looks like a contradiction. Uh, there's another thing that Christians do and they say, how does this verse apply to my life? And they look at the Old Testament and they try to pull things essentially out of context, applying something meant for the Jews to themselves. And, and I say, well, that's not yours, that's theirs. Well, how does this verse apply to my life then? Why is it in there if it doesn't apply to my life? And my answer is there are no verses in the Bible. <laughs> the verses are artificial divisions, okay? What you have is narratives. You have sections of the Bible which taken as a whole, in many cases, do have application if we apply it properly. But we, we, we don't pull a verse out like an exodus where Moses says, you know, God will fight for you while, while you keep silent, you know, and that's the parting of the Red Sea. People pluck that out and make that a promise verse. It wasn't meant to be a promise verse. Yeah. Christians aren't supposed to be silent. We don't that's keep right. silent and Christ fights for us. We speak out and get persecuted. That's the New Testament ethic. Yep. But notice that it's, the, it's isolating these that's individual right. verses and giving them a meaning the author didn't intend. I have such a desire for people in my life who are not believers in Christ to trust the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't make them trust the Bible, even with all the best arguments in the world. So uh, what actually is required for someone to, to actually believe the Bible? Well, and what can I do to hasten that? Okay, there, there, there are two elements here. One is, in a certain sense, natural. The other is supernatural. So let me just use apologetics, which is reasons to defend the faith, why Christianity is true, as an example. Um, for me as an apologist and any Christian making the case for Christianity, it's our job to explain the truth as clearly, as faithfully, and as persuasively and graciously as possible. That's our, our job. We're 100% responsible for that. Is that going to change people? Not by itself, okay? Even the simple gospel doesn't change people. It's those things with the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Combined. God uses these means to an end, but there's this indispensable role of the Holy Spirit. So that's apologetics and witnessing. I think there's a parallel here in understanding the Bible. So we have friends that, you know, that are not Christians and don't believe the Bible, whatever, and we're trying to persuade them otherwise. Well, we give reasons, like the ones I've offered here. Sometimes they don't believe the Bible because they misunderstand things. They misunderstand slavery, for example, in the Old Testament. I talk about that in the new book, Street Smart's coming out. Uh, they misunderstand alleged genocide in the Old Testament. That's another thing I deal with. They misunderstand all kinds of things in Scripture, and it's the misunderstanding that is the barrier for them, okay? So if we understand what God meant in those particular things, and some of them are a little bit harder, I get that. But then we can explain to them, we can remove that barrier, yeah. okay? But removing the barrier, though important, isn't the final That's right. issue. The final issue is the Holy Spirit. That's right. Then using what you've done in their lives. And this is where prayer comes in. We don't want to be a barrier ourselves and make things harder for people. We make it as easy as possible with clarity and explanations. But then we pray amen. And we trust the Holy Spirit to do That's the work right. that the Holy and, Spirit and the, is and doing. And the power of the gospel is what leads them to salvation. 
I, I love that picture that you're painting there for us of apologetics, answering uh, genuine questions about the faith and, and the Bible, uh, clear the, 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 the barriers and the rocks out of the way so they have a clear vision of the cross. Right. And then we look to the Holy Spirit to actually yeah. convert their soul. I, I call it 100% man and 100% God. In other words, we're responsible for 100% of our side of the ledger, okay? Yep. And God is responsible for 100% of his side. He'll do it, by the way. The real question is whether we do our side That's and right. then trust him to work. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.